So I want to look together this morning at Psalm 34. And if I was going to give this sermon a title, it would be something like The Goodness of God. And in a moment, we're going to look at at Psalm 34, see how David experienced God's goodness through salvation, through deliverance. But when we talk about God's goodness, that raises a question often in the minds of people. That question is this, if God is really good, then why do bad things happen to us? Why is there so much senseless evil and suffering in the world? And that leads to another question then. If God is really sovereign, if he's really in charge, then is he really good? And so some people will conclude that God can't be both good and sovereign. That you can't have it both ways. So many people throughout history have asked those questions. Many people still ask those questions today, don't they? Maybe some of us in this room this morning are asking those same questions. And and these are heavy questions. These are weighty things. So I I don't want to treat it lightly. But as we work our way through the first 10 verses of Psalm 34, I, I think we'll begin to answer these questions. As we dig into these 10 verses, we'll see that only those who have walked the path of suffering and pain and then experience God's deliverance can truly experience, can truly know that God is good. And that perspective, that experience changes everything. So if you have your Bible, look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34, I'll read through verse 10. Psalm 34 of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Let me pray for us. We'll jump in this psalm. Father, I pray as we look at your word that we would be filled with hope in Jesus, our deliverer. I pray as we consider your goodness that we would not pretend that we get to decide what goodness is, but trust you and trust that you are the one who knows what is good. So God, I pray that 
the words that I speak, the thoughts that we think together, would lead us more and more into transformation, into the image of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. So as we start looking at the psalm, um, and as we read the psalms in general, we tend to skip past the headings, right? We tend to treat these as, uh, you know, just extra information. It's kind of unfortunate the way it's set up in the psalms because they're not numbered with the rest of the verses. So when we read the psalms, uh, we see them like the heading, like Paul's missionary journey or something, and we we just kind of slide past it. But when, when you read the psalms, you shouldn't skip over those. Because they're, they're actually part of the text that's come down to us. They're part of God's word. They're there for our benefit and often give us a little inspired background on the psalm. So in this particular psalm, the, the background is found in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. And we won't take the time to read it this morning, but the gist of the story is David escapes from King Achish, a Philistine king in Gath. Now, if you're wondering why it says Abimelech, just as a footnote, that's probably a a title for Philistine kings, Abimelech. Kind of like Pharaoh is the title of the king in Egypt, right? Caesar is the title of the king in Rome. So Abimelech means the king is my father. So it's it's a title of a Philistine king. And and like I said, we we won't dig down into this story. But if, if you've read through the Old Testament lately, You remember that that David is in serious trouble here in Gath. If you think back to Genesis, God had promised to fix all that had gone wrong in the world, to fix our rebellion against him. And he was going to use a particular family to do it, the family of Abraham. And then one of Abraham's great-grandsons named Judah would have a descendant who would reign over the nations. So now David is from the tribe of Judah, and he had been anointed as the promised king. It was through David that the promises to Abraham, the promises to Isaac, the promises to Judah would continue. But what was going on in 1 Samuel 21? He was running from King Saul. He was, Saul was trying to kill David in 1 Samuel 21. And David ran straight to a city called Gath. Now, here's a little piece of trivia about Gath. Guess who the most famous person to come from Gath was? Anybody remember? Goliath. Remember him? Now, do you think David would be very popular in Goliath's hometown? (laughs) He had killed the hometown hero, and that led to the defeat of their army. I mean, so David went out of the frying pan and into the fryer. So he's in Gath, and so through this strange series of circumstances, David acts crazy, and, and the, the king said, I don't want this guy coming into my house. Just get him out of here. Let him go. It, it was this strange circumstances, and it shouldn't have happened that way. David knew that there was no explanation for his deliverance apart from what God had done. David knew that God had delivered him. He knew that he had experienced the 
salvation of the Lord. So the, the point of this superscription, the heading in the psalm, is that God worked in an unexpected and surprising way to deliver his anointed king, David. And when he did this, he was keeping his saving promises to his people. This is important context for us, to see the, the whole context in the Old Testament and in David's life. But he wasn't just saving David as an individual in Gath. Yes, he was doing that. He was showing kindness to David. But in doing that, he was keeping his saving promises to his people because this is the anointed king, the one through whom the promises were going to be fulfilled. God delivered his anointed one, and when he did this, he was keeping his promises to save the world. And so, so with, with that in mind, let's go back in the psalm here. A after David had experienced this great deliverance, he calls us, he calls God's people to worship. So the first three, three verses are kind of a prelude, a call to worship. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So the, the two statements in verse 1 just make the same point. David was committed to unceasing praise for the Lord. Blessing the Lord. When he talks about blessing the Lord, it's not like we are giving God a blessing like the Pope blesses people or something. No, the word means something like kneel or worship. I will worship the Lord. His praise will be coming out of my mouth all the time. So, so he's saying that, that what God has done will never be far from his mind or from his mouth. Because of what David had learned about God, his mind was never far from praising the Lord. It didn't take that many triggers, so to speak to turn David's heart back to praise to God. And this isn't the trite Christian radio light kind of praise many of us are familiar with, but this is a saved from what seemed like certain death kind of praise. And quite honestly, it would leave many Christian DJs and many Christians today speechless. The same thought continues in verses 2 and 3, and it goes one step further. Not only is David, the Lord's anointed king, committed to this never-ending praise himself, but he turns and, and calls others to join him. And this is a call for the humble. So we need to recognize our humility. We, we should all have this kind of humility. It's the natural result of recognizing that we are weak, needy, and poor. When David was in Gath, and the king had a sword to his throat, he thought there would be no escape. He thought he was done for. But God delivered his anointed king. He saw that the only way he could escape was if God worked on his behalf. And, and this, this attitude should really be reflected in all of us. John Calvin says that this humble attitude is reflected by those who, are, who have been humbled and subdued by afflictions. So instead of breathing, the spirit of pride are, are cast down to the very dust. 
You see, it's only when we, like David, recognize that we are weak, we are needy, we are poor, we are cast down to the very dust, only then will we be glad to hear what is coming, glad to hear of God's deliverance. When we understand what David experienced and why that is good news for us, we'll have no response, no, no other alternative but to, to join him in magnifying the Lord, exalting the name of God alongside those who have experienced the same thing. Those who have tasted through their sin, suffering, and salvation that the Lord is good. So in this prelude, we get a little glimpse of God's goodness. As we begin to taste his goodness, we begin to understand why we can trust our sovereign God, even in the midst of a broken world. So to understand this, we, we need to, to dig into what it looks like for God to save his anointed one. And then secondly, what are the results of that deliverance? So, so all of that was just still just introduction. We're just getting off the ground here. So, so we dig in to the meat of the text. First, salvation comes to God's anointed king in verses 4 to 6. I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from my fears. It's David speaking. Those who looked him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So here again is David on the brink of death, and the king in Gath had no reason not to kill him. But David seeks the Lord's deliverance and help, and God delivered him. Same idea is repeated in verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord delivered him. Yahweh saved him out of all his troubles. David knew he was without hope. And unless God did something to intervene, he would be dead. But the Lord heard, the Lord answered, the Lord saved, the Lord delivered him from his enemies. And so as a result of this in verse 5, David's face was radiant. It was beaming like a new father when he sees his baby for the first time or a bride on her wedding day, or maybe when you, when you reach a goal you've been working at for years, or you find out that you've got a, a job that has been your dream for a decade, people look at you and they, they know, whoa, you just got good news, didn't you? What's the deal? Those who have been delivered by God will reflect that kind of radiance and joy, will begin to understand what the goodness of God really looks like then. And not only that, but David also knew that, that he would not be put to shame. So we need to stop here just for a second or more and think about what the Bible means by shame. When the Bible talks about shame, it's usually not shame in the sense of embarrassment. If I were to walk over here and trip over this cord and knock over the, the music stand and break a guitar or something, I would be embarrassed. But I wouldn't be ashamed in this sense. You see, in the Bible, shame is a big deal. 
It often points us to God's judgment in the last day, when shame means that we will be ashamed before God without excuse for our sin. We'll be put to shame because we have no answer for what we've done. We have no answer for our rebellion against him. So when David says that those who've been delivered by the Lord will never be put to shame, he's pointing us to that last day when we'll stand before God without shame. So that raises a question in my mind. Why did David move from God's deliverance in Gath to the assurance that he would never be ashamed before God? In other words, why did David think that God saving him from execution in Gath also meant that God would save him from shame in the day of judgment? And I think we've already alluded to the answer. God delivered his anointed king, the one through whom his promises would come. And David knew that through his anointed king, God would save his people. Stay with me here. David knew that God had promised to rescue, to rescue the world <coughs> through his ancestors, through Abraham and Judah. He knew that the promise would be fulfilled through a king in the line of Judah. And he knew that that promise came to him as a member of Judah's family. So David saw that, that his predicament with the Philistines wasn't just about whether David himself would escape. It was about whether God would keep his promises to save the world through David's family. And he did keep that promise, didn't he? Sorry, I have a little pickle in my throat this morning. He did keep that promise. A thousand years after David died, a greater king came who also cried to the Lord in the face of death, who sought the Lord while soldiers held a sword to his throat. But unlike David, this king went all the way to death and came out on the other side victorious. And so on, on every year on Easter Sunday, we celebrate early every Sunday as we gather on the Lord's Day, we celebrate that the Lord delivered our king from all his fears and from all his troubles when Jesus rose from the dead. So I think in this psalm, David is looking forward to the promise that God had made to defeat sin and death so that he would never have to face the shame of standing before God on the last day, facing eternal judgment. So we see in verse 7 that the promise of deliverance belongs to all those who fear the Lord. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers him. Because Jesus, our great king, has defeated the greatest enemy of all, sin and death, then we can share in this deliverance. So what this is saying is that God himself will encamp around us. The angel of the Lord often points us to Jesus, whether you, whether you think that's a pre-incarnate Jesus or not. The point is that God's presence is around us. And we know today that God's presence is with us through Jesus. So God himself encamps around us through his son and he delivers us from our enemies 
that will cause eternal shame. So those enemies are not the Philistines. They're not the Russians or the North Koreans. They're, they're not our rivals at work. They're not financial pressures. They're not inconveniences in our daily life, ultimately. Those enemies are our own lust, our own anger, our own desire to be known, to be in charge. But our great King Jesus has gone to the cross and delivered us from those enemies so that the last enemy, death, might lose its power. And if we've experienced that, that deliverance from sin and death, then we can begin to taste the goodness of God. So look at verses 8 to 10 to see the result of David's salvation and really the result of our salvation as well. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see God's goodness, David says. The goodness of God is, is not something we look at from a distance and analyze. It's not something for a laboratory table or a philosophy classroom. The goodness of God is something that we taste and experience and see and know only as we walk in the path of deliverance. The goodness of God is seen in his faithfulness, his love, and his care for his children. Do you see that? It's only as we experience God's deliverance that we can have a full taste of his goodness. Only the person who takes refuge in him knows what it means to taste and see that he is good. So, so we sometimes talk about the attributes of God or his characteristics apart from the saving actions of God. So we put them in two different categories. Okay, here's the attributes of God. His holiness, his omniscience, his omnipotence. And then over here is his salvation, his mercy, his forgiveness, that sort of thing. But we can't separate who God is from what he does. The Bible doesn't do that. We can't separate who God is from what he, from what he has done for his people. See, it was only after David had been saved from his enemies that he understood what it means to taste God's goodness. It's only when he saw that he had an appetite for God's goodness that he could taste it. You know, every year, there, there are two or three days that I really look forward to the food. You know, Thanksgiving... Christmas, Easter Sunday, those are probably at the top of the list for me. And for all those meals, I make sure that I'm good and hungry, right? Because if I got up on Thanksgiving, and I had this huge breakfast, and then I kind of just snack my way through the day until the big meal, when I load up my plate with turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing and all that good stuff, and I sit down to watch the lion's Usually lose. (laughs) But if I sit down with a full plate and I already have a full stomach, no appetite, I won't taste and savor the goodness of that meal. 
I'll get sick and or I have to run to the bathroom. Because it's only when we're hungry that we can really savor a good meal. So it's only when we recognize and see our hunger for God that we can taste his goodness. And it's only when we see our need for deliverance that we see our need for God. So, so to return to the question we started with, when we say we cannot imagine a good God who would allow suffering in the world, we forget that it's only through suffering and deliverance that we taste his goodness. That's huge. That, that should change our perspective on everything. So David continues in verses 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who fear him do not lack anything. Now, now don't forget who was saying this and the circumstances he, he was in when he was saying it. Yes, he had been delivered in Gath, but David was still running for his life. He was still experiencing all kinds of things that that you and I would probably call lack. He spent many more months, if not a few years, on the run from King Saul after writing this. He was hiding uh, hiding in caves, kind of living off the grid, scrounging for food. And water. But because he had been delivered by the Lord, he could say he lacked no good thing. Even the young lions suffer want and hunger, he says. Now, like I alluded to a minute ago, I am a Lions fan. I think there's a Lions game today against some other team. But as a Lions fan, I know that Lions suffer want and hunger. Football Lions do. But the point in the psalm is kind of the opposite of that. Unlike the football Lions, young Lions were the strongest, most capable animals in the ancient world. Apart from men, they had no natural predator. If any animal was safe from hunger, safe from want, it would be a young, strong lion. But even a lion, when the drought comes, when bad weather comes, when accidents happen, even a young lion could grow hungry and suffer lack. That's David's point there. But David lacked nothing good. Even though he barely escaped the king of Gath, and King Saul was right on his tail, chasing him all around the region, trying to kill him. Even though he'd been living on the run with no creature comforts to speak of, no stability, still he lacked no good thing. Because he knew that he had the only thing that mattered. God had delivered him. And God would keep his promises to save the world, ultimately through his descendant, the true anointed one, Jesus So regardless of what is coming our way, if we are trusting Christ, if you are fearing the Lord, if you are seeking him, 
They're all different ways of saying the same thing. If you're casting yourself on him, if you've experienced his deliverance, then you lack no good thing. Hear this. No matter what difficulty, uncertainty, or disappointment is coming your way, if you've seen your need for Christ as the only way to save you from the wrath of God, if you have cast yourself on him as your only hope of deliverance from your sin, then you lack no good thing. That's amazing. Do you really believe it? If you don't have a dime to your name, if you have relationships that seem unfixable, if you have pain that's unrelenting, if your plans are falling to pieces, but you have tasted the goodness of God, then you lack no good thing. And you can drink deeply from his goodness. So we started off again talking about this tension between the goodness of God and his sovereign power to stop suffering and pain. And I know I haven't answered that question the way maybe some of you would hope I would. But remember, we're not dealing with a God who fits into our little box. As C.S. Lewis said of Aslan the Lion and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we're not dealing with a God who is tame. Don't try to make God fit your definition of goodness. Instead, submit yourself to the one who defines what goodness really is. So when we talk about God's goodness, at least remember that much. If you hadn't experienced sin and the suffering that comes along with it, then you can never know God's deliverance from that suffering and sin. And if you never know his deliverance, then you cannot taste his goodness, at least in the way that David is talking about here. I know that doesn't answer all the questions. But you cannot continue to say that if God is both good and all-powerful, then he won't allow so much pointless evil in the world. If you think that you are in a place where your definition of God's goodness should define the reality of who God is and what he should do, then I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, but that is arrogance. It's not up to us to decide what God should do. That presumes an awful lot of us that if we can't understand pain and suffering, then it's pointless. It assumes that you are the final arbiter of what is right and wrong, and what it's doing is putting you in the place of God. And that's a dangerous place to be. So Tim Keller, who probably many of you are familiar with, is helpful here. Keller writes, if you have a God great enough and powerful enough to stop your suffering, you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons you do not understand. You can't have it both ways. But because he is God and you are not, 
Remember that one? The will of God is necessarily, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond your largest notions of what he is up to. And then he alludes to Lewis like we did. Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. Who said anything about him being safe? But he is good. He's the king. And we can even continue. Keller says, we may not know the reason why God allowed pain and suffering to enter the world or why he's not yet eliminated pain and suffering, but whatever the reason is, it's not that God is aloof and he didn't care. Remember this point. The Christian view of God is that he cared enough to come down and enter into the pain and suffering in the world. So Christ, although he knew no sin, entered into the world and took on the pain and suffering that our sin deserves. And he came out the other side victorious. God himself became man. He endured the suffering of pain, of death. He walked all the way to the end of death roads, death's road. And when he did this, he defeated sin and death. He rose from the grave, and now he invites us to taste and see that God is good. Have you really tasted this, that God is good? Or do you just talk about it in the abstract? Do you just kind of put it up on the shelf and analyze it? Stand back and look at it like an expensive piece of art? Or is it like a, a swimming pool that you dive into and immerse yourself in? Have you really tasted that God is good? Today, cast yourself on him. Receive his forgiveness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Cling to him. Remember that he has delivered you. And remember what he has delivered you from. If, like David, you taste and see that he is good, then you'll be compelled to unceasing praise we talked about in the beginning and you'll be compelled to call others to magnify the name of the Lord with you so that is our calling church let us taste and see that the Lord is good and let us proclaim that goodness to our neighborhoods around us to the nations around the world who need to taste of God's goodness let's pray together Thank you, Lord Jesus, for walking the road of suffering ahead of us so that we can taste the goodness of God. I pray that we would hold fast to your goodness and come what may, remember that we have no lack in you. We may suffer want in all kinds of ways, but at the end of the day, we have no lack. We lack no good thing. I pray that that truth would drive home deeply in our hearts and that we would be transformed because of it and compelled to proclaim it to others. We pray it in the name of our great King and Deliverer, Jesus. Amen.